So we're talking about kids. We're talking about families in our new series entitled Thermostats and Thermometers. And the subtitle of this series is Setting the Spiritual Temperature of Your Home. Now, it's really, really important to me that all of us understand when we're talking about families and we're talking about the home, we're not just talking about moms and dads. We're talking about grandparents and aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters. We're talking about some of your best friends who are part of your family's life, uh, your godparents. We're talking about teachers and coaches who have an influence on kids, babysitters and daycare providers. We all have the opportunity to have an influence and make an input in the lives of the children in our lives, whether they're young or whether they're adults, we, we can have an influence. So last week, as we started this series, we introduced this idea of leadership is influence. And, um, you know, I get razzed quite a bit around here about being able to finish my messages on time. And uh, one of the reasons that makes that complicated is because I really, really like to like provide a bit of a review of the previous week because just to sort of get everybody back on the same page or if you weren't here last Sunday, just to kind of get you oriented. And um, I'm going to have to learn to fight that urge if I'm going to get our messages done on time, especially now that we're doing two services. So I'm just, just going to give you a quick review here today. When it comes to leadership is influence... There's no debate that parents were intended by God to be the leaders of their families, whose primary responsibility is to use their influence for good, namely the spiritual health and well-being of their children. So in this series, we're using the metaphor of thermostats and thermometers, and we're proposing the idea that parents are thermostats. They set the spiritual temperature of a family. They determine how hot or how cold it's going to be. And children, by nature, they respond to that. So they're more like a thermometer. So we're going to continue to explore that, uh, that uh, topic a little bit more today. But if, if you weren't here last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go to our website, SibylCreek.com. Go to the On Demand tab. And just check out last week's message as we started down this road of this discussion. So here's, here's our premise. God's design for the family was for parents to be thermostats, to, be used, to use their influence to set the temperature spiritually that occurs in their home. And so today we wanna to tackle another topic related to that. We wanna tackle this topic, how to raise a child who loves Jesus. How to raise a child who loves Jesus. Now, I, I get a little nervous when I want to make a statement like that because um, I'm not really sure I can deliver quite what that seems to anticipate. It sounds, um, sounds like I might have some secrets or I know some verses in the Bible that if you just do these things, your, your child will grow up with a deep love and affection for Jesus and that somehow I have some money back guarantee but you know what? It, it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. There's far too many variables and influences, too many complexities to expect that there's an easy button to this. There's just so many things that can end up influencing your child apart from your influence. And, and some of you, you've done a great job of raising kids, but your kids later in life, they made some choices 
and other influences played a factor in where they might be in their lives right now. And we're, we're actually going to talk more about that next Sunday. Part three of the series, we're going to talk about what happens if your child doesn't love Jesus and how do we as parents stay engaged and use our influence. But today, I want to kind of set the expectations in the room. Today's message really falls under the category of what I would call wisdom. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a book called the book of Proverbs, and it's all about the pursuit of wisdom. It's my favorite book in the Bible. I'm fascinated with the topic of wisdom. And, and here's, here's the thing about how wisdom works or how Proverbs work. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are not guarantees. Proverbs are observations about the way that life generally works. And if you follow those ways, ready, you listening? You'll increase the likelihood of success or prosperity in your endeavors. Did you get that? Proverbs are not guarantees. They're simply observations about the best way that life works, especially when we consider the truth of God, that we raise the likelihood of things going better for us. So in the book of Proverbs, we talk about the wise way of living. We talk about a foolish way of living. And the book of Proverbs is showing that if you live in the direction of wisdom, your life will go better. There's a likelihood that your life will go much better. But if you live your life on the path of foolishness, you can be assured that your life is going to be full of turmoil and complications and backwash and pain. And so really the appeal of the book of Proverbs is make a good choice to pursue the way of wisdom. So wisdom is not guarantees. It's about greater probabilities. Does that make sense? So um, one of the ways that we could think about this is in terms of finances, just by way of illustration. There's wise ways to handle your finances and there's foolish ways to handle your finances. So we could talk about like things like um, working hard at a job and being honest in the work that you do. You could talk about saving some of the money that you make rather than spending it all, setting aside some for the future. We can talk about the wisdom of putting your money in those places, those tools, those vehicles, where your money might work for you and earn interest over time. We can talk about patience and consistency, and we can talk about fighting the, the urge to want something right away, but saving toward it in order to acquire it when you have the finances. We can talk about setting aside something for the future, knowing that you will not be able to work all of your life. That's a wise path. A foolish path is to ignore that. Foolish path is to be lazy. Foolish path is to do dishonest things in your work and risk getting caught and having to pay fines or even maybe spend time in jail. Foolish things is like racking up so much debt on a credit card that there's just never enough money each month or putting them in places that are kind of get rich schemes and it's you know too good to be true and you find out later that it was in fact too good to be true. Living well beyond your means. Those are foolish ways of living and your finances will not in fact provide for your needs in the way that they can when you pursue a foolish path. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're talking about raising kids. What I'm suggesting to you today is that there's some wise ways to go about nurturing the heart of a child to grow up to love Jesus. And then there's some foolish ways and you can just ignore some of what I might be proposing today. 
So today I want to offer you five recommendations. Five recommendations on how you might increase the likelihood of your child growing up with a love for Jesus. Anybody interested? Okay. Now, the fact that I'm covering five means that we're going to have to go through them rather quickly. But I like that. I have the option that if we only get through three of them, I can still end on time and maybe share the other two with you at another occasion. All right, ready? So, Jesus made this statement. One of the last statements he made to his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after his resurrection. If somebody comes back from the dead, you probably give him that kind of authority. Therefore, here's what he, his instructions to the disciples. Go, make other disciples, other apprentices of faith. Do this across the world of all nations. You're gonna start with people who don't follow Jesus. You're gonna invite them to follow Jesus. The public declaration of that is you're gonna baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then here's what I want you to do with these people that you lead to faith in Jesus. I want you to teach them. I want you to be a mentor in their life. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I commanded you. As Jesus looks back at three years of influence in the lives of the disciples, he says, now I want you to pass it on to others that you'll influence for me. So I want you to talk about loving your neighbor, praying for your enemies, and not being judgmental, being uh, patient and kind. I want you to do unto others as you would have them to do. Help other people understand that. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So this is where we get the idea of discipleship. One believer having influence and another believer, preferably a young believer, and helping them to grow in their faith by, they, by them coming fami- becoming familiar with the instructions and the, the commands of Jesus. So it's interesting, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the first century church, and he's talking to parents, and he's basically talking about this very same concept. He says, parents, don't exasperate your children. Don't frustrate them by making the demands so high and so, um, so hard that you end up frustrating this child who's trying to learn the ways of life from you. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is discipleship. Helping children understand the way of Jesus. So in many ways, Christian parenting is discipleship. It says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These are two specific Greek words, and they have a meaning to them. And so Paul's saying this, parents, I want you to parent with an atmosphere of love and compassion, encouragement, and support. I want you to create an environment in the lives of your children that's encouraging to them to learn the ways of Christ. And then I also want you to teach them the admonitions of the Lord. This is parents with instruction, with guidance, with correction, and at times with discipline, helping them understand the very serious nature of what it is to be a follower of Christ. And he says, I want you to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You see, folks, this is far more than just teaching your children the basic expressions of manners and responsibility and, and good behavior. His instructions are very specific. I want you to encourage and teach your children the ways of Jesus. So that there's parenting, 
This is the general, you know, development of a child. And then there's Christian parenting. This is a parent who assumes the responsibility given to them by God by entrusting children to their care to teach them the ways of Jesus. This is, in essence, discipleship. Parents are disciplers of their children. So, to get started on the recommendations I have for you today about how you might disciple a love for Jesus in the life of your children, I want to begin with a question. You ready? That didn't sound very convincing. You say, well, let me see the question first. The first and most important step in raising a child who loves Jesus is to answer one critical question. Do you love Jesus? Because it's going to be really hard for you to influence your child in the direction of loving Jesus if you're not setting an example or providing an illustration of what that even looks like. It's one of the first rules of leadership. You can't take somebody a place where you've never been. I can never say enough how absolutely critical it is for parents to set an example for what it is that they want their children to become because your children are learning almost everything from you. If you want your children to grow up loving Jesus, then you have to model for them what it is to be a person who loves Jesus. I mean, I want you to think about it. The first step to influencing your child toward a deep love for Jesus is to model for them what a deep love for Jesus looks like. All right, now think about it. Um, a child conceived, spends nine months taking shape inside of his mother's womb. And then he's born. She's born. He or she is a completely blank slate. They have absolutely no information, no facts, no figures, nothing that shapes the person that they will become. Now, there's the hardwiring that God creates into all human beings. They have the potential to learn. They have the potential to grow. They have the potential to become. But when they are born, they are completely blank slates. Who is it that's going to have the most influence on Filling in all of that open space. Well, in the first most, inform most formative years of a child's life, it's their parents and their family. It's their mother and their father and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles. Later, as the child starts to develop some independence and starts moving out into the world, other people will have influence. And this is particularly true in the eras, uh, eras of junior high and high school. But by that point, the most formative years in a child's life is like the ages of like 3 to 12. And who has the majority of influence during those years? It's you as parents. So if your child is going to learn the basics of what it means to love Jesus, you're going to be the one who sets the example for that and provides the information that will influence them in that direction. Does that make sense? So we want to begin there, that the way that you increase the likelihood of your child growing up to love Jesus is that they find the models of their mother, their father, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, the other influential people in their life, setting the example of somebody who will love Jesus. 
So I can't emphasize enough. I'll keep saying it again and again. Parents set the example for who their children will become. So let's talk about a second one. You ready? Make it about a relationship with Jesus, not a religion about him. If you wanna increase the likelihood of your child growing up to love Jesus, don't make it about a religion. Because I'll just tell you, religion is rules and rituals. It's obligations and observations or observances. And I'll just tell you, and probably most of you know, religion is boring, it's empty, it's life-stealing, it's exhausting, and it's deceptive. And you know what's really sad? Is most adults will settle for a religion because it requires the least from them. But children won't. Children in their innocence and their honesty, they're the first ones to go, boring. When they become junior high and senior hires, they're the first ones saying, this is so irrelevant to my life. It doesn't help me because religion doesn't really tend to life. It just manufactures these hoops that you jump through, these boxes that you check, these things that you do, and they don't really help with your life. Religion, religion is the best way to discourage your child from knowing what it is to have a relationship with Jesus, especially when it's forced on them by parents who are satisfied with it. So my encouragement to you is introduce your child to the dynamic of what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. And you say, but Paul, that's what I don't understand. I don't understand. How do you have a relationship with someone you don't see? That's the mystery of it. That's what makes it an adventure that's so different than religion. Introduce your children to the curiosities and the questions and the doubts of what it means to have a relationship with this person who is alive and real, but they cannot see because that is in fact the adventure of faith. And children's minds and their curiosity, they're best equipped to pursue the things that are mysterious because once they get older, they start just pushing all of that stuff down for something that feels more real. So you have a wonderful opportunity when a mind is curious to introduce them to the invitation of Jesus to come follow me, this person that you can't see, but we come to believe and trust. That is in fact what faith is all about. Does that make sense? You're introducing to them a relationship Relationship has factors to it. A relationship is about learning and exploring and discovering this other person. Relationship is about talking, which is prayer. Relationship is about listening, learning to hear the voice of God in their heart. Relationship is about respect, understanding who Jesus is and showing him a respect. This is all relational dynamics that a child is completely capable of exploring with the help of a parent who will encourage them to know a relationship with Jesus more than a religion about him. Wish I could spend more time there. Third one. Normalize talk of faith, God, Jesus, and the Bible in your home. Make it completely normal to talk about the things of faith in your family. I think this is exactly what the Old Testament had in mind when God gives these instructions to the nation of Israel. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts 
Impress them upon your children. Talk about them in all of the avenues of life. Talk when you sit at home, you're sitting in the living room, just spending some time with your family. Talk about God, talk about faith, talk about Jesus. When you get up and walk along the road, sometimes the mornings when you're taking your kids to school in the car may be a great opportunity to pray about the big test that they have that they're worried about. Just make that normal. When you lie down, when you're putting your kids to bed, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, which again, Jewish, uh, Jewish people, they, they literally do these things. There's so many different creative ways to bring up the conversation and explore the conversation with your children about faith. And don't do it just now and then. And whatever you do, listen to me, whatever you do, don't only talk about God in a moment of crisis or you're in some sort of discipline impasse. Because what that does is it teaches your children to compartmentalize their faith. Talk about faith all the time. You can talk about faith at the table. You can talk about faith when you get done watching a movie together. You can talk about faith when they're started worried about getting their geometry um, homework uh, done. You can talk about faith and what we're asking Jesus to be involved in their life. We, we can do that in so many different ways. Don't compartmentalize faith discussions only to the hour that they're at church on a Sunday. Does that make sense? You can pray before meals and spread it around. Let the children pray. Let mom and dad take turns praying as a way to model. This is how we normally talk to Jesus, just through the conversation of prayer. You can read children's stories at bedtime about faith. Please, don't read them from the King James Version, okay? You'll just bore your children to death. Get a great children's Bible that highlights some of the characters and, and some of the character qualities that we discover in those stories and just introduce your children to the discussion of faith. Make it normal. Here's a great opportunity. When you drive home from church today and you're either headed out to lunch or you're headed home for lunch, ask your children this question. Ready? What did you talk about at church today? Do not ask them what did they learn because that sounds like a test. That's performance-based and most likely they're gonna kind of bow up and not wanna have a discussion. Just ask, what did you talk about? Ask from a curious heart. I really wanna hear what were some of the things that you were discovering back in Kids Creek or in our student ministry. Just what did you talk about today? And don't accept a simple answer. Probe it with questions. Get a conversation started. And it may be met with a certain amount of reluctance. Just be persistent. We're trying to do it consistently enough to where it becomes completely normal to have these sorts of discussions. And then you share with them what you talked about in your class, like here. And they'll ask you, did you do a craft? Did you get a snack? And you can say, no, that's why Kids Creek is so much better. But you can talk about what did we talk about? And maybe you'll bring this up. We're gonna talk about our family being more comfortable talking about God and Jesus and the Bible and the things that we're learning about our faith. 
as a way to generate the discussion. Now, folks, this may be awkward and uncomfortable initially if you're not in the practice of doing it. But there's no better time to start. And what we find in all arenas of life, the more consistently we do something, the more comfortable it becomes. So if you're not in the practice of praying with your family before a meal or reading stories to them from the Bible before they go to bed or talking about their relationship with Jesus in regards to a test that's coming up at school, start doing that and doing it frequently enough to where your children become familiar with it and we normalize that in your home. Does that make sense? All right, let's go to the next one. Do everything you can to nurture a love for the church as a community of faith. I'm not talking about a place where we go and do religious things. I'm talking about the church as it was originally created. The church was not a place that you went to. The church is something that you are. It's not stained glass and steeples and pews and pulpits. The church in its original design by Jesus was to be a community of men and women of all shapes and sizes, of all different ages, of all different races, of all different life experiences, sharing together the journey of following Jesus. That's what a church is. Give your children that. Do everything you can to nurture a love for the church as a community of faith. You know, I I grew up in a very conservative Baptist church. And my parents and I, we've had this discussion before. Most of what I experienced was religious in nature. And I thought it was boring and incredibly irrelevant. But the greatest gift that I have in the experience of growing up in the church that I did is the community of men and women and peers who created an environment for me to grow and prosper, not only as a Christian, but as a person. There were some men who taught Sunday school class that knew me and I knew them. And they liked me and I liked them. And I felt like I was somebody in the community of faith that sometimes I didn't feel in other places. And so I grew to love the church, not because of necessarily something that I was learning there, but because there was a community of men and women that were like grandparents and aunts and uncles to me in my spiritual journey. And I think that is the greatest gift that you can give to your child when it comes to the church. But if your attitude, your mood, your body language, your words portray some sort of an annoyance or resentment toward church, your children are gonna pick up on that. I don't care regardless of how well you think you hide it, they will pick up on the body language that you're not really into the community of church. And if it's not important to you, in time, it'll not be important to them. Give your children the best that a church has to offer and that is community. Friendship with their peers, mentorship from adults, and a larger community of people who share similar beliefs and values and priorities when it comes to the determination of following Jesus. Folks, here's what we have to appreciate. And this starts so early these days, it's so sad. But our kids are getting hammered every day by conflicting messages and models of what provides meaning and purpose in life. And very little of what they're finding outside of our homes 
very little of it champions Jesus as life's greatest source of happiness and fulfillment. In fact, they're being told the complete opposite in stuff that they watch and stuff that they read and friends that they run around with. And just general society and culture and nature is not a big champion of Jesus. And your kids at school, in their neighborhoods, and their friendships, they're getting hammered with this stuff every single day. So why not offer them a place where there's a larger community of people that they can look around and go, these people share the same values, the same priorities, the same beliefs that I do as somebody who's on a journey of a relationship with Jesus. That would be one of the greatest gifts that you'll ever give to your children. I mean, imagine your children growing up and they have grandparents at church, not like their biological grandparents, but older men and women who've gotten to know them and their name and their story and they're a part of their life or aunts and uncles who are spiritually connected to them, not because of a bloodline, but because of a spiritual belief in Jesus. That is such a profound and powerful impact on the lives of your kids. Think of your church, not only as a place of content, and experiences like services and children's programs. Think of your church as a community of relationships that you surround your children with men and women who share the beliefs, share the values, share the priorities of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Because that is what a church family is all about. A young man in our church recently said this, it just warmed my heart when I, when I heard him say it. He says, Sundays at Cibolo Creek is like going to a weekly family reunion. I just love that. And I was going to call Wyatt out here this morning, but last night I had the opportunity to unite Wyatt and his new bride, Allie, together in marriage. And right now they are on a plane headed to their honeymoon, so I told him he'd have the Sunday off. <laughs> but I just love the sentiment of that. Looking forward to coming to church on a Sunday morning, not to check a box or jump through some hoops, but to be surrounded by people that I think of as my friends and my family of faith. And your children's lives will be enriched if that's what they know about church. But I have to be completely honest. For those of you in the room and those of you online, it is impossible to provide your children an enriching experience of Christian community remotely. To those of you worshiping online with children, I'll just be honest with you. It is hard to introduce to your children the genuine dynamics of a community if they're not here. And then I'll add this. It's almost as impossible to do that when your family's participation is hit and miss when it's now and then, we're in on a Sunday morning and we're out and we never spend time visiting much, only when you feel like it or when you don't have something better to do on a Sunday. This relational community that children discover in their participation at church, it has to be a consistent thing because that's the dynamic that cultivates relationship. It's possible that you hit and miss church so often that your children end up feeling like guests every Sunday, though you've been coming here for five years. Does that make sense? Okay, last one. 
You guys all right? I mean, you gotta be encouraged. This is the last one. That means I'm almost finished, right? Number five, prayerfully ask God to nurture a love for Jesus in the heart of your child. You're asking for God's help to assist you and to do some things that you'll never be able to do to work in your child's life in a way that you'll never be capable of. Ask God for the help to raise your children with a heart for Jesus. I mean, look at some very interesting prayers that we find in the New Testament. Now, it's not about a biological family. It's about a church family. And what we find is that the Apostle Paul, he had a deep, deep love for the church families that he was instrumental in getting started. And he was instrumental in leading toward the journey of following Jesus. He makes some very interesting prayers for these people that he loved, that he considered their family. Look at this. In the book of Ephesians, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, I keep asking. You get this feeling that he does this not just once. He does this time and time again. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is the apostle Paul praying for people that he loved that they would come to know Jesus better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That one prayer right there is a powerful pursuit of asking God to be at work in the life of your child. I found this passage of scripture printed on a note card in my wife's closet years ago. At a time that we were sorting something out as a family with our sons. This is the prayer of a mother. This is a prayer of a father who loves her children and wants God to be at work in their hearts and their lives. Elsewhere, in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to another church. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You become keener, more discerning about the things that you love because it's possible to fall in love with all sorts of things that are truly not good for us. But this prayer is that you may love, your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. That is a prayer that a parent can pray for their children every single day, consistently making that investment And the understanding that I need God's help for what will happen in the life of my child's relationship with Jesus. I need help as a mom and a dad to set an example of what it looks like to be somebody who's in love with Jesus. But I'll say this, never underestimate the power of your prayers. Regularly beseeching your heavenly father to be at work in the heart of your child. Now, those are five recommendations. 
They're not guarantees. They're not promises. They're proverbial in nature. Those five things can go a long way to increasing the likelihood of your child growing up to have a deep love for Jesus. But I know some of you are sitting there and say, but Paul, I wasn't perfect, but I did a lot of that. My child has no interest in Jesus. Worse, my child has wandered far from God. I know. It breaks your heart. It complicates your family. And sometimes it confuses your faith. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But I believe in the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of those five recommendations is that it will increase the likelihood of your child growing up with a deep love for Jesus if it's modeled by their mom and dad. If it's about a relationship and not about a religion. If they grow up in a context where it's completely normal to discuss faith with its questions and its doubts, to discuss Jesus and God in the Bible It's completely normal. It'll increase your likelihood if you're praying for your child that God would be at work in their heart and their life. Here's the truth. Sybil Creek Community Church can't raise your children. We can't raise your grandchildren. That's a responsibility that's been given to you as their family. The best we can do is to help, to encourage you and to support you and provide you some resources. And I got a couple of resources as we close today that I'd like to recommend for you. On your seats, when you came in today, you found this card, Parent Q. It is an excellent resource for parents of small children and teenagers. This is an excellent resource. It provides conversation starters for families to explore the ideas of faith. If you want to find it, you can go to our webpage, sibylacreek.com, go under the resources tab, and you'll find um, another um, place to go. It's called uh, Leading the Next Generation. You can find out more about ParentQ. Another excellent resource that's on that um, page on our website is called Axis, and it's geared more toward teenagers. If you're trying to raise a teenager, there's some wonderful resources that are available to you through those two um, resources and, and those apps. Does that make sense? We can't do it for you, but we'd love to do it with you. We put so much time, we put so much energy in our children's ministry and our student ministry because we want to help families to be successful. We're committed to the next generation at this church. But most of what's going to happen in your child's life will happen because you decide to follow Jesus and set an example for them to do that. Make sense? Let me ask you to stand together. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I enjoy meeting guests to our church. I'll be available over here on the left-hand side of the auditorium. I'd love to make your acquaintance. So come up and introduce yourself. Let me know that you're here. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace toward us. Thank you for this 
wonderful privilege that you've placed on our shoulders to have an influence in the lives of children. I just ask, Father, that you'd help us to be good stewards of that responsibility. I pray for moms and dads in this room, whether they're raising young children or teenagers or early 20-somethings, I just ask, Father, that in your favor, you'd give them the wisdom, the discernment, the courage, the confidence, the patience to have an, an enormously positive influence for good and for God in the life of their kids. Thank you, Father, for your help in the very real challenges of our life. We thank you for this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, everybody, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.